whatever you think of the various companies and, and business models, um, the metaverse as a concept is inevitable. And, and it's inevitable because it's the way we should perceive information. We're going through something absolutely historic. Technologies across the board are growing exponentially. It's a disruption that's going to completely redefine the way businesses compete. In the next decade, we're going to lose 40% of today's Fortune 500 companies. The exponential growth of computing is continuing. AI is nowhere near its full potential. Whether you like it or not, that the future cannot be stopped by anyone. So welcome back to the Future Tech and Foresight podcast. So in this podcast's previous incarnation, uh, VR and AR were discussed numerous times, especially as the podcast ran throughout the entire pandemic period and remote work and the future of collaboration and interaction was really top of mind for many people. In late 2021, however, with Facebook's rebrand to Meta and their new focus shifting more towards kind of emerging horizons, the metaverse became front and center for many discussions about emerging technology. Most apparently, many asked, what exactly is the metaverse? How will it work? Who will own it, etc., etc. But over the last year, especially, with Facebook, now Meta, really tying their brand to the metaverse, and in many people's mind, the two actually becoming synonymous, when uh, I guess we can say hiccups in the quality, direction, and functionality of Facebook's vision became apparent. Many of the previous questions asked turned into one question, namely, is the metaverse already dead? So to discuss the current and future viability of the metaverse and what it might mean for all of us if it comes to be is my guest, Dr. Lewis Rosenberg. Lewis is an early pioneer in the fields of virtual and augmented reality. His work began over 30 years ago in labs at Stanford and NASA, where he worked on early VR vision systems. In 1992, he developed the first functional mixed reality system at Air Force Research Laboratory. And in 1993, he founded the early virtual reality company, Immersion Corporation, which is still around today. In 2004, he founded the early augmented reality company Outland Research. He received his PhD from Stanford University and was a tenured professor at California State University and has been awarded over 300 patents for VR, AR, and AI technologies. And he's currently the CEO of Unanimous AI. So I found my conversation with Lewis to be extremely interesting. I think that his ability to weave current technology examples like mobile phones or social media into concepts either related to or directly on the metaverse give a very clear vision of what this phenomenon might shape into. For anybody curious about what the metaverse is, how it will work, and potentially when it will come about, this discussion will definitely shed some light on the topic for you. Great. Well, thank you, Lewis, for uh, coming onto the podcast today to talk about the metaverse. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, one of the things that I ask all of my guests um, whenever we're talking about a new kind of technology that's coming onto the podcast is how you initially got interested in it. I, I know that you've been working within the metaverse world for, for several years now, but what kind of initially got you interested in this technology to begin with? Uh, yeah, I, I've, uh, 
actually got involved over 30 years ago uh, in, in the metaverse. Uh, and uh, it was 1991 when uh, I was a, a graduate student at Stanford uh, University. And my interest was human-computer interaction and technologies that would enable people to enhance their performance. Mm-hmm. And um, of all the technologies that were around at the time, uh, virtual reality was really just emerging, just started to kind of, uh, even that word only existed for maybe two or three years. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I uh, was lucky enough to, to get a, uh, a research position at, uh, at NASA in their virtual reality lab. And, and so in, uh, in 1991, I started doing research on vision systems for, uh, for mm-hmm. virtual reality. I, you know, I believed in the, the basic concept of it, but as soon as I really started working in the field, I realized, okay, this is, uh, this is important. Uh, this is an important technology. Um, and my research was pretty basic back then. I was, I was working on, you know, how do you model the distance between people's eyes, the interocular distance to optimize mm-hmm. depth perception in mm-hmm. virtual worlds. And again, 30 years ago, like all of the research was really that basic, like trying to understand yeah. the basic parameters of how to make virtual worlds uh, realistic. And, and for me, uh, when, I, when I started uh, working in that space, I realized that this is a technology that really is going to be very significant to enhancing human performance because it's presenting information to people in the form that our perceptual system was meant yeah. to receive it. Uh, you know, we weren't meant to, to stare at flat screens or walk down the street staring at a phone in our hand. We were meant to perceive information all around us. And, uh, and so, uh, again, back, even back in 1991, when the, the technology was certainly much simpler, it, uh, it was very apparent to me that this technology would, uh, would eventually change the world. It would, it would be the way we're supposed to interact with information. Now, I thought it would take a lot uh, quicker than 30 years. Uh, I, uh, I actually believed that we were within 10 years of, uh, of the metaverse really having a significant impact. Um, I mean, a lot of people don't realize this, but in the, you know, by 1995, virtual reality was a really big thing. Like there were lots yeah. of small companies working in this space. It was, you know, the cover of Wired magazine uh, talked about virtual reality. There were lots of movies that came out of Hollywood. And so there really was a sense that there was a, this big wave of hype, uh, but it, you know, by 1997, 1998, it uh, it disappeared, and uh, and we we uh, everyone in the field had to work, uh, you know, in in the space in uh, without calling it virtual reality. Okay. We call okay. It simulation. <laughs> right. 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 It, uh, immersive media, but it wasn't. Uh, you know, it took about. 10 years for, for, uh, for that winter to start to thaw and, mm, uh, and mm. the technology to come back again. So much like uh, AI winters that have happened in the past, the virtual reality, and I guess now the, the new iteration, the metaverse reality kind of went through one of these winters. And I'm assuming that's also uh, the dot-com crash had a big part to play with that. Yeah, although it had it, it, had it uh, in kind of the opposite way, you might think, mm. which is, uh, so... Uh, you know, I, after I after I spent time at, at 
NASA in 91, I actually went to the U.S. Air Force and, and worked on augmented reality in 92 and 93. And, and I, I was so sure that this was going to happen within the next 10 years that in 93, I founded uh, one of the early VR companies, Immersion Corporation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and again, the, the industry was, uh, was really on an upswing, 93, 94, 95, 96. And then 96 is when the dot-com boom started. Right. And, um, and instead of helping virtual reality, actually hurt virtual reality because the venture capital world suddenly just switched and right. they want, you know, every dollar they had, they want to put, they wanted to put into, a, you know, an e-commerce startup right. and, uh, and virtual reality at that point, you know, was already, you know, three or four years of, of money going in and it was going slow and, um, and really, by ninety seven, ninety eight, it kind of became a dirty word for for investors. They they didn't want to hear the word virtual reality, and they didn't want to hear it again until probably two thousand two, two thousand three. So it was a it was yeah. a you know over a decade winter, um, but the technology continued. It didn't disappear. It just uh, was pushed forward under different names. Uh, you know, uh, in my, my company we focused on. Uh, virtual reality for training doctors to perform surgical procedures. Right. And so we usually just talked about, you know, uh, medical simulation and training uh, as opposed to using the word virtual reality in, until mm-hmm. uh, the early 2000s. And then it became re- okay to use the word virtual reality again. And, uh, and you know, now virtual reality in medical training is, uh, is yeah. a very promising field. Great. Um, so I think now that, I mean, virtual reality has, in a sense, evolved into this this new term, the metaverse, or relatively new term, right, at least for the public consciousness. Um, but I read one of your articles, and uh, I've also had the same issue with people asking, like, what is the metaverse? So maybe you could take uh, just, a, just a couple seconds, a minute or two, to describe what is the metaverse actually, uh, as it is envisioned, because it's maybe not there yet to how many people actually envision it to be right there's uh there's lots of different definitions people throw out about the metaverse and they get increasingly complicated and have increasing numbers of pieces and parts that are required i I actually like to keep it relatively simple because i I believe it really is a simple concept and you really have to think about it in terms of the the human and and so to me the metaverse is really this uh, global transition from a digital world that's currently based on flat media viewed in the third person to a digital world that's going to be based on immersive media experienced in the first person. Mm-hmm. And so it's this, this transition from, again, flat media to immersive media that is the core of the metaverse. And again, it sounds simple, but it really changes everything. It changes the role of the user from an outsider looking in at information to a participant where information is all around them and presented in natural and intuitive forms. And and it's uh, it's a significant transition because... Again, that's how our perceptual system was meant to perceive information. It's how we explore our world. It's how we understand things. It's it's how we remember things. We remember things spatially. Um, And so it's, you know, I I like to say that, you know, whatever, you know, whatever you think of the various companies and and business models, um, the metaverse as a concept is inevitable. And and it's Mm -hmm. inevitable because it's the way we should perceive information. Um, and, I, and I, you know, I, again, I think that by 2030, we'll be thinking that the metaverse, we'll really all understand what the metaverse is and it will be 
um, have a very significant impact. And, um, and I think that it will be uh, largely an, an augmented world, uh, meaning the metaverse will include the real world. It will, you know, people will be able to perceive the real world with virtual content all around them. Um, I, I believe that because while it's natural and intuitive to have information spatially presented, it's not natural to be cut off from your physical surroundings. And people, uh, so so people have these kind of two competing uh, tensions. One, they can appreciate and value information that's spatially presented all around them, but they don't want to be cut off from the real world. You can do that with augmented reality. And, uh, and by 2030, you know, the 2030s, we will look back at you know, movies of today, right? When people are walking down the street, staring, you know, down at a phone with their right, neck bent, right. you know, bump, bumping into you know, telephone poles, and we'll say, like, "Wow, that's how people used to get information." Because in the 2030s, it will just be, you know, you'll be walking down the street, and the information will just be there, it will be around you, and uh, it will be placed in the location that it's actually useful, as opposed to you know, always down on a screen that you have to look at. And, um, and so to me, that's the metaverse. And, uh, and again, very, very simple transition from flat media to immersive media. But also, I, I do think it's important for people to realize that it will, it will not be these cartoonish worlds that people currently see. You know, you currently see, you know, lots of these companies, you know, promoting things that look, I, I mean, they don't. They don't look appealing to most people. They look like these cartoonish worlds that uh, very, you know, aren't really that different than worlds for kids, like Roblox or exactly. Or, exactly. Uh, or Minecraft. I think that once we make this transition, where it really is augmented reality, but it can be as immersive as you want, um, and at the. Uh, Avatars will both be, you know, a mix of real people around you plus photorealistic uh, avatars. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't feel like this cartoonish world and it doesn't cut you off from your physical surroundings. People will think, oh, well, that's just a natural way to interact. That like that makes sense as opposed to what you see right now, which I think for a lot of people just looks kind of foreign and gimmicky. And um, and it leaves a lot of people wondering, like, well, why do like why do I want that? You know, why are companies investing billions and billions into that? And I think you have to realize, like, well, that's this stepping stone that will pass through uh, relatively quickly. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's a that's a great point. That's also uh, a lot of the criticism that I've been seeing online and both kind of in my in my personal life as well. Like hearing people like uh, what, what was it? I think Mark Zuckerberg posted a, a selfie in the in the Meta's metaverse, right? And it looked like it was something from you know ten years ago, twelve years ago. The graphics were so bad, and uh, there was a lot of a lot of critique and a lot of maybe loss of vision or interest in the metaverse. With not just that, but many other. Kind of examples that the the technology wasn't there, the graphics weren't there, the immersiveness wasn't there, uh, not even close. But you know, give it a decade or so, and, and things might be. Um, I, I really want to go into kind of the the immersion aspect of the metaverse and a lot of the kind of uh, individual implications and impacts, but also maybe for businesses or governments. But I think maybe before then, one of the things that would be interesting to, to get your insight on is uh, the challenges that will lead up to kind of this 2030 vision of the metaverse that you've, that you've so nicely laid out. 
um, I can only imagine that the technology has to kind of uh, grow by leaps and bounds over the next ten years or so, but maybe there are some some other uh, challenges that you can that you can uh, point to. Yeah. So if you um, if you think about how the industry will evolve, I actually think it's useful to to separate the metaverse into kind of two categories because they'll evolve differently. There's mm-hmm. what I would say is the the virtual metaverse and the augmented metaverse. And again, they, they overlap and they're, you know, they're not distinct, but, but the reason it's helpful to distinguish them is that the virtual metaverse, which is what we're thinking of today, of these you know, completely virtual worlds, everything simulated, um, you wear you know, fully immersive headsets, mm-hmm. that's being driven you know, largely by social media, uh, by the world of social media uh, and gaming, with the idea that gaming and social interactions will evolve into these uh, metaverse worlds where people hang out and socialize and play games. And uh, and I think that will happen. Uh, it will happen. Uh, I mean, it, in some sense, it's already happening. Uh, you know, there are, you know, immersive gaming platforms that have, you know, tens of millions of, of users mm-hmm. um, uh, on a regular basis, e- even for kids, you know, Roblox for kids has 50 million you know, regular users. It's an immersive world. It's interactive. It's creative. Minecraft, interactive world. It's immersive. It's creative. Uh, I think that those metaverses will evolve. Uh, they'll get more realistic. Uh, they'll, they will uh, become more appropriate for adults as they become less cartoonish. Uh, but they will be used primarily, I believe, for uh, entertainment and social socializing. Mm. Uh, they will be, you know, environments for watching sports and for watching uh, movies and for uh, f- for uh, just hanging out with friends and family. There will be some, you know, socializing for business purposes. But I do think that for the most part, it will be limited to activities that are just a few hours long kind of similar to um, how people will sit down and lose themselves in a movie for a right, couple hours. Right. But anything more than that, people start to feel uncomfortable when they're cut off from, from their world. Um, I, I, I do believe that they will become more and more popular, uh, you know, these, these metaverse worlds, and people will also have short experiences for shopping. They'll, you know, they'll do online shopping in immersive worlds and, and things. But when we think of like the metaverse that could literally change society, change your mm-hmm. daily life from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep, I think it will be the, the augmented metaverse where you're wearing uh, lightweight glasses and content is displayed all around you. And, and what's, the reason I separate it is it's evolving, whereas the virtual metaverse is evolving out of gaming and, and social media, the, the augmented metaverse is evolving out of the mobile phone space. It's, you know... Apple and Google and Samsung, uh, they all see that the mobile mobile computing, mobile media will evolve from staring down at a screen to uh, eyewear that puts information all around you. It, it has an obvious benefit. It's natural. It's, it's intuitive. And it will drive adoption in a really different way. And, 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 and that's why I believe it will happen faster and more in a more predictable way. Mm. Uh, whereas in a virtual world, you have this problem of um, if you if you go into Meta's Horizon or, or really any sandbox or 
decentralized. Any any platform today, it's kind of empty. There's there's a there's not many people. You have this chicken and egg yeah. problem. Well, there's not a lot of people there, and so it doesn't draw more people. And uh, you know, there's whereas the augmented world, the real world, is already populated with people. Right? You, you solve yeah, that great problem. Point. Great point. It, it has a population, and um, and so now what really you need is just content. It's a it's a content problem, not a pop, population problem. Um, once you start to push content, and I believe that Apple will be the, the master of doing this, although others are, you know, Snap is doing a, a good job of pushing, you know, augmented reality content. Uh, Meta will be pushing augmented reality content. I'm sure Google will be doing it as well. But Apple, um, when they launch their their mixed reality headset early next year. It's an expensive device, but its reason is to push developers to create content. Mm -hmm. And so, um, if you're uh, if you are a you know a mobile media company, you know a, a mobile a phone company today that sees that their industry is going to become a glasses you know industry in five to ten years, I think you realize that once there's content, once people walking down the street can see content all around them. Everybody else who just has a regular phone feels like they're missing out on that content, right. and and they will resist a, you know for some amount of time, but as more and more content is available, they will feel uh, you know pressured or maybe excited to you know to transition from handheld phones to to eyewear, and if you look at say the iPhone, which again if you, if you go back to you know before the iPhone everyone had flip phones nobody thought they needed an iPhone. Uh, Phones were for making phone calls, maybe text messages. Uh, the iPhone launched. Uh, content was available on the iPhone that you couldn't get on a on a smartphone. And within six years, it pretty much the industry completely flipped from mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. flip phones to smartphones. Even though smartphones were what five to ten times more expensive, um, and I think that same transition plan or same transition model will happen with the augmented metaverse. In that, as soon as you know, a major provider like Apple launches glasses that are stylish and provide content, um, people will probably over five to six years feel like they they need to transition. And so, you could easily imagine that if um, if augmented reality eyewear is launched by say Apple in 2025, and they're going to have their high end stuff launched in 2023, but let's say two years later they have. Uh, inexpensive stylish glasses that are the, you know, the price of a phone, mm -hmm. then within five or six years, by the early 2030s, you could imagine that, you know, this augmented metaverse is everywhere and it's affecting everything. You know, it's going to, when you're walking down the street, it's giving you content. When you're shopping in a store, it's giving you content when you're at home. And again, it can be very much like an iPhone where it's, a, it's the one device people have with them from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to sleep. And I think you know, that will be augmented reality eyewear. And so really, when people think of the metaverse in the 2030s, they'll be thinking of augmented reality because that will be mm -hmm. the experience they have from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to sleep. And they, they will also have virtual reality experiences for socializing and entertainment and, and I think for watching sports and other things. But again, that will be more like you know, how today people use their iPhone from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to sleep, but then they also sit down in front of a television for uh, periods of time. And so I think that will be the metaverse of the 2030s. 
That's a fascinating way of thinking about this this transformation, this change. I, I hadn't been put to be that way before. I think it also makes it, um, I mean, that much more exciting, but also that much more scary or frightening that it's it's such a short time horizon that this is actually going to happen. Um, may, maybe then that's that's a great segue into kind of the impacts or the the problems and the challenges of actually having this metaverse um, as part of our lives, because I think that typically when it comes to new and emerging technologies, we're all so excited about the possibilities that it'll bring, the benefits. But I mean, there's so there's so much little discussion about the actual problem. So I know that you've written about this. I've read a couple of your articles um, in preparation for the interview, but maybe you can just start off with what is one of the main or what is the main problem that you see when this fully fleshed out AR metaverse is being used by people at a, at a ubiquitous scale. Sure. Uh, and so, you know, I am a proponent of, of mm -hmm. these immersive technologies. I've been uh, excited about it again for, you know, for decades. Um, but as we get closer and closer to, to the technology really being deployed on a large scale, I also have a lot of really significant concerns. And my concerns aren't about the technology itself. It's about, uh, you know, what happens if you have very large, powerful corporations that are controlling metaverse platforms? Uh, I, I see it as a, a large metaverse platform. If it's unregulated, if there's not policy or guardrails, uh, could have extreme power over its population of users. Mm -hmm. uh, extreme power that, that I actually believe the metaverse could become the, the most dangerous tool of persuasion that we could create. And a good way to understand it is to compare it back to, say, social media. Mm -hmm. uh, social media, in a very similar way, also looked at as a utopian technology. If you go back 10, 15 years, we saw social media as this, you know, this tool that could uh, democratize information and give a voice to the voiceless and give access to people all around the world and bring people together. And, and social media did those things. Um, but it also uh, did a whole bunch of unexpected things where it, uh, it drove misinformation and uh, disinformation, misinformation, polarization. Um, it, it segments populations. It, it creates all these unexpected problems. Mm -hmm. and, and again, it's not the technology of social media that created those problems. It's, it's the business models. And so the business models of social media really boils down to tracking, profiling, and targeting users. That's, you know, the companies that, you know, pretty much every social media company, the way that they generate revenue is to provide their service for free. But in exchange, users allow them to, to track track them and profile them, and then sell targeted uh, targeted access to third parties who can then uh, influence those people. So it's selling influence in a targeted way, and to maximize this ability to do targeted influence, it, uh, you know, these platforms also have targeted news and targeted friends, and that creates these echo chambers and 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 polarizes populations and and. Again, unexpected problems, but that's that's what happened. If the metaverse is unregulated, the businesses will follow this very similar business model, but the dangers increase exponentially because tracking, targeting, uh, tracking, profiling, and targeting becomes uh, 
a lot more dangerous. So you think of just tracking, tracking and profiling users. And social media tracking and profiling users means tracking where you click, maybe what you buy, who your friends are. That's, you know, that's pretty extensive. Yep. In the metaverse, and again, it could be a virtual world or augmented world, tracking means tracking uh, where you go, what you do, who you're with, what you look at. All, you know, all these headsets will track exactly what direction you're looking. They can track how long your gaze lingers. Uh, they can track your, um, your eye motions. They can track your gait. Where do you speed up and walk past something? Where do you slow down and look at something? And so you could be walking down the street and uh, a real street with augmented reality or a virtual street in a, in a virtual you know, mall. Um, and the platform provider could track exactly where you're going, where you're slowing down, what you're looking at, how long you look at different things. Uh, they, and they're not just going to track this once. They could track this and store this over time. So they can build up all this, inf this behavioral information about exactly how you navigate your world and, and what interests you and what doesn't interest you and who you're with and, and where you slow down. Uh, at the same time, they'll also be able to track your emotions uh, through your gait and your posture and your gestures. can already do that. Uh, new headsets now can also track your facial expressions and, again, track your emotions uh, your vocal inflections, uh, and uh, these platforms will even track your vital signs, uh, yeah. blood pressure, heart yeah. rate, respiration rate. These things are already being tracked by, um, you know, by smartwatches and other devices for health reasons, but they're, these technologies are being built into earbuds and headsets. Um, and so you could imagine uh, very easily a metaverse world where a large third-party platform can track everything you do throughout your day from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep and track exactly how you feel at every moment during that day, yeah. exactly how you feel for every single action and interaction and reaction. And they can create uh, behavioral profiles and emotional profiles that are really intimate and then use those to target you. And that's, if that's their business model is to then say, okay, I'm going to sell targeted content to people and I know exactly how they behave and exactly how they react to every type of stimulus throughout their day, they could, they could sell very effective targeted content. And in the metaverse, the targeted content is not going to be flat pop-up ads and, and videos that pop up. Targeted content will be immersive experiences. They will, uh, advertising and influence and persuasion in the metaverse is going to be uh, virtual product placements, for example. So I'm walking down the street and I see a parked car as I walk by and I think, oh, that's, you know, that car is cool. I've never seen that before. And I don't realize that I'm the only one seeing that. That was targeted for me. Mm, right. And I don't realize that that was placed there based on all this special promotional targeting and that influences me. And, and that's like the, the most innocent form of product placement. A more mm -hmm. realistic form of product placement would be, I walk by and I see a parked car and there's two people standing in front of the, that car talking about it. Um, and they are avatars that look like everybody else, but they're not real, they're AI. They were placed there for me to overhear you know, the driver telling the passengers they're standing outside the car, how, you know, how much they love this car and, and, uh, and how well it drives. And again, I might not realize it's an advertisement. I might just walk past and think, 
oh, like that's just part of my daily life. And that's one of the biggest dangers about persuasion in the metaverse is that I might not even know the difference between what is an authentic experience and what is a promotional experience that was injected into my world. Because again, in the metaverse, a large platform, if it's unregulated, can change the world around you for promotional purposes. And you might not even know that they changed it. You might not even know that some of these items were put there for you to see for promotional purposes. Uh, You might not realize that other people walking down the same street are seeing different things. Um, You might not, you, you might just subconsciously notice, oh, there's lots of people, you know, drinking Red Bull around here. People must like Red Bull around here and not realize like, no, like that was placed there for me to incorrectly perceive my world or even worse it doesn't have to be Red Bull. It could be political propaganda, right? right I could, I could be right. walking down the street and see lots of people, you know, wearing shirts for a particular candidate or, or ha- overhear conversations about a you know, particular ideology. And again, not realize, no, that was targeted persuasion that was placed yeah. into my world. And so the metaverse potentially is a really dangerous tool <laughs> for, uh, for influencing people and, um, And it gets one step more dangerous with the recent advances of artificial intelligence. And so in, you know, these kind of passive um, product placements or even people that I overhear, that's one thing. But in the metaverse, a primary form of advertising will be conversational agents that uh, virtual spokespeople that walk up to me and have a conversation with me and, and, you know, engage me in conversation about anything. And it could be um, that I'm in a virtual coffee house and I, you know, overhear somebody talking about, you know, some new restaurant they went to. And I, you know, and maybe I, I, I asked them a question and they're not, they're there. You know, they were placed there to, to lure me into that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and they have access, you know, this virtual spokesperson, uh, they're an AI, but they have access to my likes and interests and and uh, on my entire profile so they could craft a very skilled conversation to to lure me into any type of uh, discussion that they want and if they can read my vital signs and and my pupil dilation and my uh, my heart rate they could detect what parts of the conversation are uh, engaging me and what parts of the conversation aren't and adjust their conversational tactics in real time. And so this transition to immersive uh, advertising or persuasion that's interactive where I'm, you know, I'm being engaged by an AI agent that has access to my full historical profile and my real time blood pressure and pupil dilation. You know, what chance do I have to not be, you know, to not be manipulated. And so yeah. it, if uh, my fear is if it's not regulated and there aren't restrictions and we don't say, you know what, if you're going to advertise in the metaverse uh, and there's a, a conversational agent, first of all, you, you, the person have to be able to tell that that's, that that's a conversational agent. You can't, you have to have the right to know that that's, you know, that's an AI. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I don't have that right, then I might not even realize that I'm engaged in this type of conversation. And then, uh, and then regulations that could say, you know, you know what, maybe we shouldn't allow 
these AI systems to use your real-time emotions to adjust their tactics, to, to process in real time your facial expressions and vocal inflections and heart rate and blood pressure um, to adjust their tactics because it's not, it's not fair, really. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's not, I mean, and there are some people who will say, well, if you were talking to a human salesperson, they would be able to do those things. Well, yes, they would, but they wouldn't have access to your full emotional history and behavioral history. Mm-hmm. And AI systems can already detect emotions that humans can't. They can detect right. micro expressions. And so even things that you don't think you're expressing, even feelings you don't think you're expressing, an AI could detect. And so the ability for an you know for manipulation in the metaverse, if it's unregulated, is is extreme. And if and if these large platforms go in that direction, which is and that direction is simply you know, an advertising-based business model. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, if they go for an advertising-based business model with immersive advertising uh, and it's not regulated, it will they will use these tactics. Those tactics will be available to them and, uh, and they will be highly persuasive uh, and that will make their, say, you know, selling advertisements to sponsors that much more valuable. And they will be competing with each other to see you know, you will have platforms competing to see who could make the most effective, you know, immersive spokespeople and um, and consumers will be, you know, at, at great risk. And again, it, you know, it might sound innocent if the spokesperson is trying to sell you a car, but mm-hmm. if they're trying to sell you an ideology or or convince you from mis- misinformation or disinformation, it's yeah. um, it's really, really it, dangerous it's it sounds like a potential hellscape right if uh, like I, I think you said it perfectly it's uh, social media but just exponentially um more troublesome um i i mean there's so many things to uh to kind of uh, go on based on what you were saying i know that we're a little bit uh strict on time here but uh one of the things that i had in my mind while you were speaking was um what is your perception on uh, the type of companies that go forward. I mean, obviously, you know, the Apples and Metas, et cetera, are going to be building this out because they have the financing uh, and the, the technology and the resources to actually build this out. But uh, I've also read that uh, Neil Stevenson, he's the author of uh, Snow Crash, who uh, coined the term metaverse in the book. Um, he's part of an, initi- an initiative to build out an open source metaverse. Um, I just want your perspective on whether, I mean, I'm typically for or pro uh, open source uh, technologies, but if the main problem that you see is uh, the need for regulation, will an open source metaverse uh, facilitate that? Or will the, um, if you can say, the corporate model of the metaverse uh, enable a more regulator-friendly future metaverse? So, I mean, there are... A lot of initiatives, uh, are, you know, all around the world of people mm-hmm. creating, you know, creating decentralized metaverse platforms, creating open source metaverse platforms, creating, you know, creating technologies with the idea that, hey, we're we're going to break corporate control because we're going to use, you know, decentralized blockchain based standard. And, yeah. and I think that I, mean, I think it's good that, that people are pushing in that direction, but I think it's naive to believe that it's going to be that simple to um to completely undermine the entire you know 
economic ecosystem for big technology. And, yeah. uh, and you, you know, we already have, you know, the largest companies in the world having metaverse on their roadmap. There's, you know, obviously meta, uh, just as significant, maybe more significant as Apple. Um, and then there's Google and Samsung and Snap and, um, mm -hmm. and Sony and Microsoft and, uh, and re really, you know, every major company. Everybody's in there, yeah. Um, and there's hardware required. So it's also, uh, it's very hard for, um, you know, for small guys to to break into a space where there's hardware required. And, um, and, and again, you know, I do think augmented reality is going to be the biggest driver. And, and that's going to require hardware. Um, and, and very difficult hardware, not easy to make, um, low cost, stylish, uh, mm -hmm. glasses that work well. I do believe that, that Apple will do it. I, I think Meta will, you know, is putting huge resources into that as well. Uh, Snap is as well. Uh, there's companies like Qualcomm that are you know, making mm -hmm. chipsets and other things to, to push augmented reality. And, um, and I think that the, the most likely thing to assume is that it will be a corporate controlled world similar to how, you know, and, and there's some um, interoperability. Like you think of the, again, think of the mobile phone world, yep. you know, you pretty much almost everybody's phone is an Android or an iOS phone. They're interoperable. Like they could call each other. They can send text messages just because they're interoperable doesn't mean that those aren't closed platforms that are very strictly <laughs> controlled by major corporations that have app stores and charge developers and a whole developer ecosystem. I, th I think that's most likely the way that augmented reality will evolve. I think that uh, virtual platforms as well, as well, you know, will evolve like social media platforms. Um, you know, meta is, you know, they'll say that it's going to be interoperable and they say that their, you know, their world will be open. But again, if you're on Facebook, you know, you can post a link from Twitter. And if you're on Twitter, you can post it. That's interoperable. Like that, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. just because, again, just because a platform is, you know, can, can share content doesn't mean that they're not corporate controlled in a very strict way. And so um, I, I think that it's great for, um, for third parties to be pushing you know, alternatives and to pushing open source and to be pushing decentralization. But I think we have to just assume and prepare for a reality that, you know, in the 2030s, it's going to be large, large corporate platforms that are going to have pretty centralized, strict control over user populations. And, um, and the best way to protect consumers is through policy. Um, I, and I, you know, and I talk to policymakers all the time, all, all around the world. And and one of the things that you know that that I hear is, well, we're still struggling to to control social media with policy. Right. How are we gonna How are we gonna uh, have policy around the metaverse? And, and then when you really have a conversation with policymakers, you, you they start to realize that uh, you know that that argument actually is backwards because the argument really is. Yeah, we waited t 10 years too long to try to put any policy around social media. The problems were already r really bad. 
And these massive companies already built their entire business around these predatory business practices. You can't, you know, it would be very difficult to put in regulation now that that stops social media companies from tracking and profiling and targeting users because that's their entire revenue stream. And so they're going to fight it. But the metaverse, the businesses haven't developed their their, uh, business models yet. Yes, they could go for an advertising-based business model, but they can go for other business models. They could go for a subscription-based business model. They could go for um, an, you know, a, a metaverse economy where they're they're making money on transactions inside the metaverse. There's there's lots of different things they can do. And if there was policy that said, you know what, there's strict restrictions on um, on selling influence, selling persuasion, selling manipulation in the metaverse, instead compete on you know, who has the best experience for consumers, who has, you know, compete on, on these other platform, other playing fields. I think that, I actually think the industry would benefit significantly because, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I assume that social media companies realize that they've lost trust of the public yes. <laughs> and yes. that, um, that their businesses are suffering because, um, because they lost this trust. And it's very hard to undo the problems that they have. And I doubt that they want to go down this similar path with the metaverse where they lose trust becomes even even worse. Mm-hmm. Um, on the flip side, without regulation, it becomes very hard for a platform to not go in a dangerous direction because as soon as their competitor does, like right. if, if anything goes in the metaverse, as soon as soon as soon as one company says, you know what, we're going to, have immersive advertisements in the metaverse and we're going to allow, you know, it to be responsive and tracking to, to facial expressions and, and vocal inflections and blood pressure and eye motion. As soon as one company does that and shows, Hey, you know, we have, you know, the most effective advertisements possible, then all their competitors um, will be pulled in that direction. Whereas if there's policy, they don't have to go in that direction. And, uh, and I think that, I maybe I'm idealistic, but I really don't believe that social media companies wanted to build when they started those companies, they didn't say, what I really want to do is build, you know, this, this tool of mass persuasion, like uh, this tool of, you know, tracking and profiling. I don't think that's why they built social media companies. They built these companies. The public didn't want to pay subscriptions. They went for an advertising business model. And then um, they, you know, they're competing against other companies and got better and better and better until they became these entities that, you know, all of their energy and capability is how well they can track and target people. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I doubt that that's where they wanted to end up. And if there's not regulation and policy around the metaverse, that's where they're going to end up <laughs> in the metaverse. Right, 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 right. Um, and it's going to be worse and it's going to be far more dangerous and there's going to be, you know, a lot, even less trust, uh, because as soon as people realize, you know, you know these, you know, these facial expression tracking technologies being used, you know, in, by advertisers, they're gonna, you know, they're gonna find it creepy, and the, you know, the, and the kind of the tricky thing is that you know facial tracking, like so, Meta has facial tracking, expression tracking in their latest headset. There are good reasons for it, right? If if they can track your facial expressions, they can have avatars look more human. 
and you could have more human interactions and the people you're interacting with could have more empathy. And, and like, there's all kinds of really good reasons why tracking people's facial expressions uh, is a positive thing in the metaverse for humanity. If there's guardrails on what you can use that information for. Right. And if there's no guardrails, then the way people are going to make money off of it is to create the most persuasive form of media that you could possibly create. And, and uh, so I would think that the industry would, actually welcome regulation and um but there was a knee-jerk reaction against regulation because yeah. that's uh that's just how that's that's how you know any corporation <laughs> is yeah yeah no understood um so i guess i guess in a sense it's we could see the the last 10 to 15 years with social media as kind of like a learning experience for what the potential uh, immersive metaverse will be, which is, uh, I think you would also agree the the kind of one main way that humans will be interacting for far into the future, right? It seems like the flat screen um, cell phones and and monitors that we've been using, as you say, not very organic, but the future metaverse uh, will be a much more organic experience and probably how we'll be um, interacting for a long time. So if we take the lessons learned over the last 10 to 15 years with social media and apply kind of the best policy uh, practices uh, for the metaverse and do it before the metaverse is actually fully built. Uh, there could be a much more positive experience for everybody, um, uh, I guess, for, for the future. Absolutely. A, a yeah. much be better experience for consumers. And I also think mm. a much better experience for the industry. Mm. Uh, mm. I, I think that the, I think that the people who work in the industry would, would rather compete on creating amazing experiences yeah. than compete on, uh, you know, creating effective forms of persuasion. Uh, but, you know, business models, you know, these, it's these little decisions, about what's the business model mm -hmm, that, mm -hmm. that guides so much of this. And, um, but I mean, you, you, you know, you express this in a good way, which is that, you know, social media should be a learning experience. It should be a learning experience for the industry. It should be a learning experience for policymakers. It should also be a learning experience for consumers. And consumers yeah. have some responsibility here, which is, you know, 15 years ago when uh, social media platforms just started thinking about advertising, consumers were, you know, great, give it to me for free. You know, they had already experienced that with television, you know, oh, give me free content. Right. And they didn't realize that, okay, the transition from television to social media is a little different in that it's not it's it's free content but it's targeted and when it's targeted it's it there's you know there's it becomes this different thing and it created all these unexpected problems okay none of us re, you know consumers didn't realize the problems policymakers didn't realize the problems industry didn't realize the problems now we see the problems <laughs> mm -hmm, we, mm -hmm. like we have no excuse for making the same mistake twice with the metaverse and we have to realize that just like the transition from television to social media really was a different thing when it comes to advertising from social media to the metaverse is also a different thing. Because again, at least in social media, you usually know when something's an advertisement, something pops up, yeah. you know, you know, you in the metaverse, if there's no regulation, you won't even know yeah. you, you may not even be able to distinguish between just authentic experiences and promotionally altered experiences. And it's so dangerous. And um, and consumers just need to be aware, and maybe consumers need to realize, hey, it's it's really not free. <laughs> it's, yeah, there's a big yeah. cost. Maybe yeah. subscriptions aren't a bad idea. Maybe yeah. you know, 
you know, maybe a tax on transactions inside the metaverse is not a bad idea. If that's if those business models don't incentivize these um, these really predatory practices. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Uh, I see that we only have a, a couple of minutes left, but um, uh, is this what you're doing within the uh, Responsible Metaverse Alliance? You're trying to uh, show policymakers that this is the these are the type of things that need to be taken into consideration. Uh, these are the type of maybe policies that need to be put in place, and also maybe educating consumers of um, you know what is to come and how to properly uh, deal with the uh, with the situation unfolding. Yeah. So um, so I. I uh... I'm part of the Responsible Metaverse Alliance, which is a it's really a policy-focused organization, uh, really aimed at talking with um, governments all around the world. And we, um, you know, the first the first step is to just educate policymakers about what mm. the metaverse is and and what it will do and and where it's going, because without without having a clear understanding of both the capabilities and the dangers, policymakers aren't going to do anything. Yeah. Uh, and then um, once we educate policymakers, we also you know share uh, best practices and, and ideas and, and uh, guidance for potential uh, potential policy regulation that could um, protect consumers. And uh, the nice thing is that we end up talking with with lots of with policymakers and lots of different governments and and it allows some cross pollination between you know, different uh, different groups around the world because um, you know you know each you know each group inside a government like they they actually want to hear what other what other you know right. how other groups are looking at it how are they looking at the problem are they taking it seriously and I do think that there are um, I do think that there's more seriousness. Uh, there is genuine seriousness among policymakers in many countries that that this needs to be addressed sooner rather than later. Mm, I think there's um, this fear that it'll be difficult just because social media has been difficult. But I, I do think that policymakers realize that they can't they can't just ignore the issue. Uh, under the premise of like, well, you know, this is still five, 10 years away. We can right. wait. Uh, and, and I, so I, I, I do, I am hopeful that, um, the governments around the world, um, realize that there is a danger here and are, and are thinking about, um, how to contain it. Well, maybe that's a, that's a great positive kind of hopeful message to, uh, to end the podcast on. Uh, thanks a lot for, for coming on, Lewis, and for, for really kind of, uh, I think, explaining not only the metaverse, but the impacts, the potential pitfalls, and maybe um, a nice clear path to, uh, to some positive uh, vision of the metaverse that we'll have. Um, I'll put um, your LinkedIn on the, on the show notes. I know that you're quite active on there, but are, are there other places that you would like ha to have people follow or reach out uh, to you? Uh, yeah, so... Um... I, uh, I I write lots of articles for VentureBeat about uh, yeah. about the metaverse and dangers and things. Um, that people can can find me there. I also write articles for Big Think uh, on similar topics. People can find me there. Um, I definitely recommend that I'm involved with a few organizations. I recommend people you know, check out one is the uh, Responsible Metaverse Alliance. Um, 
and again, we focus on policy. I'm also uh, very involved with uh, the XR Safety Initiative, XRSI, and uh, which really does great work in in uh, developing standards of practice for for safe uh, metaverse environments, XR environments. Uh, so point people to XRSI, and then uh, there's an event coming up in December called uh, Metaverse Safety Week, which uh, is a, a a whole set of uh, presentations and all, all around um, pushing for a safe metaverse. Okay. And um, I'm giving a talk at that event. It's all, it's all online, virtual, uh, but lo- lots of people focusing on everything from um, human rights in the metaverse and uh, exploitation in the metaverse to, you know, to how, you know, how governments can push for, you know, safe safe practices perfect okay well i'll uh, i'll put the links up in the show notes and uh, for those of the viewers um interested they can they can follow you there um thanks again for coming on i found it really interesting and uh, opened up my mind a little bit more to the metaverse even though i'm i'm also very uh excited about the technology and i've been following it uh, reasonably closely over the last uh, couple of years so uh, thanks for expanding my mind and i hope that um i hope that the listeners also get something out of it as well Great. Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. A pleasure. So thanks for listening to this week's Future Tech and Foresight podcast. If you like what you've heard, here are a number of ways that you can go out and support the podcast. The best way would be to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or even give a rating on Spotify, which you can find a step-by-step explanation for on the futuretechandforesight.com website. Alternatively, feel free to leave a comment either on the episode show notes on the website or the YouTube channel where you can also see video recordings of each of the interviews. And finally, if you are part of an organization that is aware of the disruptive and transformational impact that emerging and future technologies will bring and want to know more, you can get in touch with me to hear about the strategic foresight services I offer and how I can help future-proof your organization and take advantage of the phenomenal opportunities available to survive and thrive in the future. A lot of future-shocked people and future-shocked institutions in our society are simply overwhelmed. Once there is superintelligence, the fate of humanity may depend on what the superintelligence does. Science fact is catching up to science fiction. The first truly intelligent machine will be the last invention that humanity needs to make. The only scarcity that will exist in the future is that which we decide to create ourselves as humans. Within a 10-year design revolution, we can have all humanity living the highest and living anybody's ever known. Progress is uh, accelerating at an exponential pace and it's going to reach a point where progress is so fast it's going to be a singularity. We are probably one of the last generations of homo sapiens. Every single headline points to the birth pangs of a type 1 civilization.